Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. In this episode, I wanted to bring together some conservative women to share their different perspectives on the Trump presidency, how they've been impacted by the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus, and how their conservative values have actually influenced their decision to put country over party and vote for Joe Biden. It's a wide-ranging conversation about how women can't be viewed as a monolithic voting bloc, how Trump's coronavirus response doesn't align with pro-life values for those who hold them, and what they have to say to other conservative women who are sincerely struggling with who to vote for in November. Joining me for this conversation today are three incredible women. First, communication strategist and Lincoln Project co-founder, and she's also the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, thanks for joining us again. Great to be with you, Ron. Thank you. We also have senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and CNN political commentator and former communications director on Capitol Hill, Tara Setmayer. Tara, it's great to have you back again. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. And our executive director at the Lincoln Project, a veteran of four, I believe, Republican presidential campaigns, and a former director at the National Security Council under Condoleezza Rice, Sarah Lenti. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ron. Great to be here. It's so good to have you all. So I'm hoping that this conversation is wide-ranging and helpful for a lot of our listeners. Um, and just to kick things off, I'm going to read you some poll numbers and just ask you to respond to them. There was an ABC Washington Post poll that said women were more likely to be absolutely certain that they will vote in November. They have a higher disapproval of Donald Trump than men by 68 to 48. And in general, women are more likely uh, to say that we are on the wrong track. 71% women, 60% among men. And so I just want to get everyone's temperature before we begin, because Trump won 41% of the female voters in 2016. Why do you think he is losing ground among women now? Jennifer, why don't you go first? I think the biggest reason is probably the simplest and most obvious one is that people have had three and a half years to see him be president. Um, and you, know, we, you can never uh, underestimate you know, what the impact that that has. Um, and in particular, uh, and this is something that we were just, you know, looking at that I was just looking at earlier today, preparing for the women for Donald Trump to come to New Hampshire this week, um, uh, is when you look at the issues where Donald Trump has been the most indecent or the most inhuman, um, the way that he had dealt with uh, immigrant children, the way that he has handled race divisions in our country, the way that he has um, handled, has shown a complete disregard for the health and well-being of Americans and their families in the way that he has mismanaged the, the global pandemic. I think that these are issues that really hit women in the gut. Uh, it, it's a mistake to assume that women are just soccer moms or just education voters. You know, that, that it's, that's, uh, that's kind of an old way of looking at it. It was a mistake back then. It would be a mistake if to look at it that way now. There are big issues that really impact us as women uh, who work as women business owners, as mothers, 
and and we've had the chance now to see him in action. And I think that really has an impact. May I join in? And Jennifer, I completely agree with you. Um, just I'm going to state the recent obvious, which is COVID and the fact that it took the president basically two months from when he got his intelligence briefing to do anything. And I don't think, well, I know women are not we're not oblivious to the fact that he dragged his feet. And for those women that have children and for those women that do not have children, but have loved ones, Jennifer, I know that your mom was in in and out of the hospital for a time during COVID. And so I think um, watching what is going down, watching the president's press briefings, seeing the economic impact that this has had, understanding that this didn't need to be this bad. It's this confluence of events. Yeah, he's always been horrible, but now it's in your face. It's in your family's face. You can't act normally. I can't send my kids to kindergarten this fall. It's, it's, it's just crashing down. I agree with, with all of what you guys said. I, I think that, you know, after, after Trump won in um, 2016, I actually wrote a piece for Cosmopolitan about how the Republican party allowing Trump to get away with the things that he got away with and his misogyny and, and just his indecency would really hurt the Republican party in the long term with with women voters, especially suburban women voters. And unfortunately, that came to fruition, what we saw in 2018, that it was suburban women voters who um, propelled a lot of the Democrats into seats that were held by, once held by Republicans. And that's carrying over because, to Jennifer's point, Trump has a record now. And it's a record that is not only hurting America, but it's it is it's hurting women, women owned businesses. Uh, you know, the covid response to Sarah's point is impacting people's lives. Oftentimes, you know, women are the they're the caretakers of children. They're doing the finances in the household. Everybody is impacted in ways that they may not have been before. And it forces them to look at it. How is this personally impacting me? That's a lot of what dictates how people approach politics. And I think the demographic that was supportive of Trump, I mean, Trump won white women overall, which was a shock at the time. Uh, Some of those things that attracted those, that demographic to Trump, I think is that's not there. That lure is not there the way it was before because their own lives are being impacted so negatively during a Trump presidency. Also, when they voted for the Trump, were they voting Tara and Jennifer because they didn't see themselves in Hillary? From the perspective of Republican, you know, strictly Republican voters, I was chairman during that cycle. And I think that the Democrats took for granted how deeply, not just Republicans, but right-leaning independents, that's, you know, that's kind of that little, that piece of the electorate that we depend on in, in a state like New Hampshire, for example. Nobody wins if you don't win the independents. But I think that they underestimated how deeply people either disliked or distrusted Hillary Clinton. Oh yeah. And if you re- think about mm-hmm. it and you know and um Sarah you've been involved in these campaigns so it go it goes back to Bill Clinton. I mean every single cycle not just presidential cycle midterm cycle as well ever mm-hmm. since Bill Clinton was in the White House Republicans have found a way to make every single cycle in part about campaigning against Hillary Clinton. It's campaigning against, you know, and so it was so deeply rooted. I I really think that they underestimated. um, And we are, and we all know the polls just underrepresented what people were really feeling. 
they're still running against Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah. are. And to a certain degree, like, that's okay. If you're a Republican, like, you get it. She, what her, her connection to the Democratic, not her connection, but her total, you know, she, she it was the Democratic Party. But, but the, the, what, what I think has to be recognized is that Republicans, under the leadership of this president, and very much in, in kind of copycat mode of this president, Republicans have become indecent in some cases, in the way that they campaign, um, whether it's against Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton. And I don't want to defend either of those women. Neither one of them represent me politically, where I stand politically. But under the the leadership and the, the, the example of Donald Trump, it has become okay for elected Republicans seeking reelection to say and do outrageous things. And, and I think Ron, back to the beginning of this conversation, I think that women are, I don't want to say offended because then it's like, oh, you're a snowflake, everything offends you. I think women take that seriously. I think that that moves the way women think about Republican candidates right now. So women are often portrayed as a monolith when we're talking about, and, and, and even, you know, even when we're talking about conservative women, and we know they're not a monolith. And so what are some of the ways that we see th- this voting block? misrepresented in in news media by the pundits what are some things that we are sort of minimizing in these numbers by by suggesting that you know that all, all women feel the same way and and how can we think about what conservative women are likely to be uh, experiencing right now it's similar to the way that you know the broad brush about you know, all black voters all you know hispanic mm-hmm. and latino voters like you can't it's dangerous when you start getting into the broad brush identity politics of things there yeah. are differences within demographics. There's age differences. There's regional regional differences, depending on where you live in the country. Um, education, you know, uh, white working class versus high school versus college educated. I mean, there's there's all different demographics. And but I think the the things that that bond women, right, if you're going to say if we're going to talk about women um, is that as far as our roles and experiences with uh, different disparities or, you know, the way women are treated in business, in media, their portrayals, there's certain experiences that we all kind of (laughs) um, can relate to. There's a common denominator there about being women. But I think that some of the issues that are important to women are important to everyone. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, are we going to have safe, safe schools for our kids? Uh, What about our, our, you know, women are business owners. They're being disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 um, uh, hits to businesses. It's hurting women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses in disproportionate ways because we have a different type of economy than we did during, let's say, the Great Depression back in the 20s and 30s. Um, and so I just think that people, when you're looking at your way of life and how it's impacted, women are looking at this and saying, okay, you know, we, what are, what is this doing for, you know, where are our interests being represented here in a way that, uh, overall quality of life. And we may have different priorities for, for certain things, depending on, you know, if you're a college, recent college grad and you're Gen Z or, or millennial, finding a job or ending up back home with your yeah. parents. I mean, these are all things I think that are impacting women in ways that, uh, that make it tough to, to ignore. But, but again, it, it depends on demographics. You can't just paint a broad brush because I think there's different priorities depending on where you are in life and where you live. Yeah. Do you think those perspectives get enough airtime in in news media? And just to underscore that point, Tara, and that question, 
women are nine points more likely than men to say that stopping the spread of COVID is more important than restarting the economy. And they're seven points more likely to worry, more likely than men, to worry about a family member getting COVID. Uh, and and among the very worried, it's women at 37% and men at 29%. What do you think is behind those numbers? Jennifer? It, that doesn't really surprise me, honestly, at all. Um, as much as, because one of the things I was going to say at, at your previous question is, I think one of the things that the that Republicans sometimes suffer from is that when looking at women as a voting bloc, is that um, the w- women are in the year 2020, and sometimes the Republican Party, not so much. Um, so we have a lot more women who are the single parent and primary breadwinner for, you know, primary caretaker and primary bedwinner, more women business owners, all the points that Tara just made. And I think that, um, I think that some of that feeds what you're talking about with these numbers as well. Uh, but it remains the true that women remain the primary caregivers, whether you're a single parent or, you know, in a relationship, a married parent, um, you know, that we are the primary caregivers to our, our elderly parents. When you hit women in my generation, I'm 56, women in my generation are still taking care of either children or grandchildren, and then also turning around and needing to take care of their elderly parents. All of these responsibilities, in addition to owning more businesses, uh, uh, being, um, to Tara's point, you know, disproportionately affected by, uh, the, the, uh, economic problems of the current, of the current situation of, of the, of the global pandemic to Sarah's, you know, situation being a single mom, uh, responsible for two little kids. She's got to work full time and teach her children at home full time this fall. I mean, so it just, you, the way that the world works and the way that all of these things are tumbling down on top of us, I th- it, it doesn't surprise me that there's kind of this disproportionate concern from women. And I, I, I would say in my own very large circle of family, I'm one of, you know, nine children and um, 38, I think, you know, grandchildren in there for my parents. Um, so... Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me to hear those numbers because that's how it breaks down in my family. I look at my mm. brothers and I look at my sisters and I look at the son, you know, the brothers-in-law versus my sisters-in-law. It, I, I think it's, I think there's just something kind of natural in there, the way that it breaks down. So working moms are nearly twice as likely to have reduced their hours compared to men with the biggest decline in hours among college educated women. That's according to the New York times. And in June, the unemployment rate was almost three percentage points higher for women than for men. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, Jennifer, as you said, we know that women make up most of unpaid caregivers for adults in the United States. 61% of caregivers are women. And I, I, think, I think it's becoming pretty clear now as we look at these national polls. For example, Fox News has a poll out that says the federal government COVID response was at a 51% disapproval among women. So I think the numbers are starting to bear that out. But as you look to the the school issue in particular, Sarah, you're very familiar with this. How are you, as a single conservative mom, thinking about uh, your kids and school coming up, and not just not just school openings or closings, but also teasing out facts from misinformation in in what is an incredibly difficult information environment? Let's put it that way. Right. So I'm struggling. The Denver went from saying that you could, two weeks ago, it was going to be our choice. My kids are slated to go to public school. And it was your choice whether you wanted to remote learn five days a week or send your kid to school five days a week, knowing that there'd be a temperature check, they would 
wear masks. Their desks would be very separated. Nobody would eat in a cafeteria. Uh, you know, lots of rules on and on and on it goes. I was prepared to send my kids to school mask, you know, just understanding the, because I need to work. Um, and my kids also like being, they like socialization. They're twins. They <laughs> drive each other crazy, you know, but, um, I, I str- the, the, the order came down the end last week saying that all kids were going to remote learn five days a week, Denver public schools, which is thrown, parents into a tizzy. So, uh, you know, not only is it, um, what are, what am I going to do? Um, I have no, I, you know, I had childcare and I, then I didn't have childcare because I was preparing for my kids to go to kindergarten. It's not only what are you going to do? It's, it, it's that. And then it's, it's wondering how are you going to implement the remote learning? And then it's the social impact on your children. You know, they, when this started and they couldn't, go to school, preschool, they were then became afraid to go outside. But all of that aside, all the, forget my logistical issues. I worry about um, kids who have single parents that have to work, that can't afford um, childcare, that have no options. Are we going to have a sea of latchkey kids? Are, you know, what's going to happen? I worry about the psychological impact. I worry about drug use. I worry about alcohol. I worry about all of this, I worry about depression. I worry about them being online all day long. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I don't think we're thinking through this correctly. It's bigger than just getting COVID. You're going to have, I think, a socioeconomic disaster on our hands and a crop of kids that are going to be really impacted psychologically. Yeah. And I would add to that because um, my kids are all grown, but I have five kids. And I keep thinking if I had, if this was, if my kids were school age now, and they're telling me you have to remote learn. I have to come up with five laptops. Five, and I think about, I, I go through like the cost of trying to, the, the economic cost of having parents take over the teaching role and, and the kinds of supplies that are necessary, the time away from work that's necessary to Sarah's point. Um, and, and also Sarah said it, but I, I don't think you can emphasize it enough. The emotional impact that this is going to have on our children, especially kids Sarah's age, in the elementary school age, who are just developing social, how to socially relate to people who are in these develop, you know, a much more, you know, aggressive developmental stage as far as all the, you know, the land, the learning marks and the milestones that you hit. And like, it's an extraordinary burden. And I'm not saying everybody should go back to school and not wear masks. I'm saying that due to the direct incompetence of this administration, every single parent in America now is carrying this extraordinary burden, trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. It's an impossible situation that we have put them in. Also, I mean, we all are hearing stories about kids that rely on their schools for lunches. Which makes it that much more um, egregious that this administration would threaten to to cut funding to school districts and, 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 you know, Betsy DeVos out here in in, making asinine statements about how kids must go back to school like a robot, not acknowledging what this administration has not done, uh, their decision to try to offer punitive responses as opposed to helping local school districts and infusing them with money and help from the federal government to try to make these transitions back to in-person learning safe 
That is, nobody's arguing the kids shouldn't be in school, but you're making, you're forcing parents to make a decision about whether their kids and are, are the kids now going to be the new frontline, um, you know, right. workers or heroes uh, going into going to school in, in the middle of this pandemic because of how incompetent and the level of failure by this administration not doing what they need to do so that kids, we wouldn't be in this position now. And I think that has a direct correlation on where we're seeing uh, polling numbers, especially for women who have to make these decisions ultimately um, and who are impacted more because they are the caregivers. That's why you're seeing those changes in in the polls and the drop in support from um, some people who were supporting Trump before. And it's not just Betsy DeVos. Don't forget. Oh, no, I just use her as an example. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) I mean, all those parents out there that are on furlough or maybe beyond their furlough benefits at this point still don't have a job or still don't have the level of income. And the president sends out his small business representative, Ivanka Trump, to tell everybody to just try something new. Yes. And the thing is, that's not us being, you know, Trump haters or you don't like it. That's what that's what they actually said. You know, to Tara's point, that's what Betsy DeVos actually did. Um, You know, just try something new. Well, gosh, just try something new while you've got three kids at home that you have to educate. And I mean, it's insane. It's extremely out of touch. Out of touch. It's so out of touch. It is so out of touch with with real Americans and how they are trying to survive right now. And yeah. that's what's hurting Trump in the polls because the response is in it's in la la land. What reality are they living in? The yeah. way that they're responding to this, it's as, as if the coronavirus uh, pandemic isn't a factor. It is a factor. Yeah. You're not going to be able to wish this away. Yeah. And this, this, you know, I've seen those same questions being wrestled with and debates raging on social media between moms trying to decide what's best for their children in their communities. And I think part of what is so frustrating when I see those conversations is how there's no clear information, no fact base that's shared about the, about, about the virus and about what the government has and hasn't done and about what could have been avoided. Um, There's really no clear uh, uh, understanding, shared understanding of what we're supposed to be doing. And that's because there's a vacuum of leadership at the top. And so in this, you know, I mentioned it before in an environment that is extremely difficult to make sense of multiple sources of conflicting information that are, that are coming at us. This has very real implications because everyone's now talking about a, about a vaccine and there's, a, uh, a new poll, uh, I th- actually think it was at the end of May that it was conducted between the AP and, uh, and a research uh, organization in, in Illinois that found fully 50% of respondents said they were either unsure or definitely would not get a coronavirus vaccine if one was developed, if one was available. And now we know, uh, you know, as, as, as politicos, we're you know, very familiar with the anti-vax uh, folks and um, who are a much much smaller uh, community, but when we see numbers that big, it underscores the mistrust uh, of this administration, of the information coming out of this administration. And I wonder how you ladies see this resolving, given that you know um, uh, moms are going to be the ones sort of deciding whether whether or not and how and when to vaccinate their children before they go to school, when they go to school, 
uh, how do you see this this chasm? And by the way, just just to put this in context, Dr. Fauci says that when a vaccine is uh, is available, he he wants to see seventy percent, at least seventy percent of Americans get the vaccine, and he would like to see eighty percent, I believe, in order to actually uh, effectively deal with the spread of the virus. That's that is a massive swing between the 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 findings of this poll and and what Dr. Fauci ultimately wants to see. How are you thinking about that? I would back up to the beginning of your question because to, to address that because it's a data issue. And what I find fascinating about this is the um, you know the the cross section, the, the the crossroads that have come together here because it, it is such a large number that that is you know expressing the concern. They don't trust the data, they don't trust the information, they don't trust the government, but they're from both sides of the aisle here. You've yes. got these folks on the Trump side who have been conditioned by Donald Trump from day one to mistrust the media, your the government, people who have served you forever, um, nonpartisan agencies like the CDC. Um, they Trump instills fear and mistrust without ever knowing there is going to be a global pandemic because it's just how he functions. It's how he keeps his people going. It's how he keeps them, you know, scared and divided against each other. And then on the other side of that, you have folks who have, who trust the CDC, who, um, you know, understand that something facts are facts sometimes, that there are things that are actually indisputable indisputable facts. And they've been watching this president lie to the American people a hundred times a day, every single day since he's become president. And they don't Trump, they don't trust him. So the idea that we have this project in place where we're trying to, you know, Uber speed to a, a vaccine, you know, they don't trust Trump and his process and what, because they know that he's led by self-interest, by political self-interest. So what's fascinating about this to me is that we've got these two groups that are really opposed to each other in most um, most avenues of life and the way that they see everything, but they've come together in this in this uh, distrust, I guess, of what could come out of the vaccine process. Can you blame them? I wouldn't get right. I wouldn't get a, a vaccine now or even in a year from now. No freaking way. And if I had children, which I don't yet. Um, I wouldn't be allowing my children to get this vaccine either because because of that level of distrust and the way that the this administration has corrupted what once trusted institutions and the CDC is a good example of that. Right. Since when did we ever think that the CDC was politically compromised? Mm. Not like it is at this level when you mm. see the people who are were respected doctors like Dr. Redfield or Dr. Burks who compromise their integrity and their decades-long reputa professional reputations as medical doctors in order to placate this president in insane misinformation that's dangerous to the American people. I mean, how Dr. Burks didn't jump out of her scarf during that press conference when Trump said about, you know, injecting ourselves with disinfectant and UV light, for goodness sakes. Yeah. You saw her face, but she didn't say anything. She right. didn't correct him. She didn't right. use her platform to say, listen, I'm sorry, but I'm a medical yeah. doctor and this is yeah. insanity. You know, they're I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. I'm so a scientist. Tara, I have a question for you in that in that moment then. If Dr. Fauci comes to out to a point where he says, this vaccine is safe, this vaccine has been fully vetted, I would take this back. Like, would you trust Fauci to tell you to go get that that vaccine? I would trust Fauci more than anyone else, obviously, just because he's been the only one that's 
stayed true to who he is for the most part. He made some mistakes in the beginning, which I think were him trying to navigate the politics of it, not necessarily speaking um, clearly as just from a doctor and epidemiologist, infectious disease expert, because if he was unbridled, um, I think he would have been a lot more straightforward in the beginning. I mean, if depending on what, if Fauci's still in government at that point, um, I might be inclined to listen to him more actually, because then he wouldn't have to worry about the consequences of being um, fired or what Trump is going to say. But then again, by the time we actually have a vaccine, Donald Trump should be voted out of office. So perhaps Dr. Fauci would be able to speak (laughs) freely and we wouldn't have to worry about questioning it. (laughs) So maybe. As a mother of two young boys, I'm going to listen to my pediatrician. And I mean that seriously. I would listen to Dr. Fauci, but I I totally trust my pediatricians and they say all politics is local. Um, But I do think there are going to be a lot of parents that um, are going to, not everybody's listening to the BS that we're seeing and hearing. But so I think, I think, I think a lot of, and a lot of those pediatricians are, you know, they, it's their job, they're informed. And so I'm waiting to see what they say. But they also are, look to some of, you know, not, not all pediatricians are epidemiologists, you know, so they're, you know what I mean? So even they are impacted where on a local level, they have to look to the CDC or the NIH or some of the, you know, larger entities here to trust what they're saying. You know, I'm going to listen to, my, you know, the, the Harvard medical school experts and scientists and people like that who don't have a political motivation for the information. But to that point, whenever there's a disagreement amongst like family members, when we get into this coronavirus debate, regardless of what this specific issue is, I go to Johns Hopkins website. Like that's my go-to place. But any of these institutions could be associated in one way or another with the research or the development of one vaccine or versus another vaccine. And it's like it, what, what's nuts, I think, and I, what I think people find so overwhelming, Ron, is that we are in a place now because of the way that Donald Trump has managed this whole thing where like average people like us are trying to become scientists and doctors. Like we're trying, like we're, we're trying to, we're just trying to figure it out. And we, we want to be like Sarah. We want to just be able to trust that. Okay. Our doctor said this just like we have for the past however many years, but we've suddenly found ourselves pushed in this position where we feel like we are have to, you know, forced to research and understand different things that we, that we haven't previously had to. And it feeds what I think we were starting to see a little bit in the polls, even before the pandemic, where Americans are just exhausted. Yes. Just yeah. exhausted. And, yeah. and in part, just, just tired of being afraid, yeah. tired of being divided, yeah. tired of, of worrying about when I'm going to get back to work, tired yeah. of, you know, my God, who's going to take care of my kids? You know, just, oh, it, it has become such a burden for Americans, I think, in a way that Certainly in my adult lifetime, I do not recall ever having experienced before. And on the family front, it is I, I, it is women who are on the front lines of having to figure out what to do with all that information, trying to become scientists or as best they can interpret the data um, that, 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 that they need to make decisions based on. And among them, I mean, let's talk about single moms a little bit more because about one in five children, 20% in the United States are living with a solo mom versus 4% of kids who are living with a solo dad. And, uh, and about three in 10 solo parents are black. Three in 10 solo moms are black. 25% of Americans are Hispanic, 25% are Hispanic and 40% are white. Those numbers are disproportionate to the, uh, to the overall 
um, composition of the United States population. Tara, you and I had a long conversation about the Republican Party and race, and I think we touched on a bit about how COVID is is disproportionately affecting uh, Black Americans, but we didn't really get into moms, single moms in minority communities. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I was raised by a single mom, but my mom was white. So it was a little bit uh, of a different uh, demographic there with that. But um, and I don't have children uh, yet now, but I'm not unfamiliar with what's happening in in these communities just based off of policy and, and experience. And it's uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate because I think what's happening. Well, here's the upside. The upside yeah. is that America's now paying attention to these disparities and these struggles and what's going on, which hopefully will impact policy moving forward so that people have a little bit more empathy when they talk about cutting this program or, um, you know, denying that there are certain racial and gender disparities when it comes to jobs and access to capital um, and and wealth creation, um, that, that this will inform them a little bit more because they're seeing this in real time. Um, it's not just impacting um, single black mothers uh, anymore. It's impacting everyone, mm-hmm. um, just some more than others. So uh, I, I think that that cannot be that cannot be ignored, and that's going to be part of I think the economic message that Joe Biden will bring to the table because there it requires a certain amount of empathy. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the government has to come in and be a nanny state and take care of everyone right. all the time, right? right. As, as a conservative, I'm very reticent to to sub- be supportive of big government programs. But sometimes that is necessary, like what's happening now with the unemployment benefits and the CARES Act and things like this to help people because they need it, you know? And we're hoping that this isn't just a short-term solution because we don't want people to get used to, well, the government's always going to come in and take care of you. That's Part of why I'm not a Democrat, yeah. um, you know, I don't, I don't want that. But in in situations like this, this is where we need. This is this is a once in a, you know, hundred year pandemic thing that we're going through. This is where I'm hoping that people see that good governance matters, mm-hmm. and having someone that understands the dynamics and how it impacts certain demographics, and making sure that if we have programs like this, they go to where they need to go and the, and the right people are getting the money, like with the, 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 you know, the business loan program and, you know, going to Shake Shack and millions of dollars going to country clubs and, you know, franchises, as opposed to the small businesses that are, that are being disproportionately impacted, especially in the minority community. And you had a 41% minority owned business drop because of the coronavirus um, shutdowns. That is catastrophic to a a demographic that's already not at the same level when it comes to business ownership. It's already, uh, you know, an obstacle to get there. So, you know, these things matter. I hate that we're playing with people, you know, we're people's lives. This is not a political game. And that's why this is so scary. And I think of those moms, um, again, I'm single and I, and I, and I chose to have my twins and I am lucky that I am going to be able to figure this out, but there are moms out there that are not going to be able to figure this out. And speaking of empathy, and this just dawned on me, Joe Biden was a single dad for a long, long time. He lost his wife and his daughter in an accident. And then he was raising his sons. He gets this. He was on a train every day to Delaware and back to Capitol Hill. He gets this. And I hope that his team 
is listening and has him start talking from that angle because I know he knows what this feels like. And listening to Tara talk about, um, and first, Sarah, just the word you just used, like empathy. We, We often have presidents with whom we disagree in small or large part, but I've never, I cannot remember a time when we've had a president who was truly incapable of empathy. And I think that that hurts the American psyche. I really do. But, you know, Tara was talking about, you know, the need for, um, whether it's the minority community or elsewhere, you know, the need for support at this point from the government and good governance. And and, and it reminded me, uh, and and she said, you know, I'm a Republican. I don't want the government. But every now and then, I remember as a candidate, I used to talk about the fact that what is Republican is to empower what I always thought was Republican was to empower people and to and to lift up the whole community, um, but that I used to use this this phrase all the time where I'd say, but government does have a role to play in making sure there is a safety net in place for the most vulnerable among us. And when I listen to Lindsey Graham complain about how much nurses are going to get in unemployment during this pandemic, like, like there's some big, you know, conspiracy out there for all the nurses to steal all of the unemployment money from everybody or something. It's insane. This is the time. There is nothing conservative about saying that when there is a global pandemic, if you're out of work, it's just tough luck. Or when there is a global pandemic, Sarah, if you can't figure out what to do with your kids, you know, bully for you. It's, it's on you. There's no conservative or Republican principle that is threading all of this together. Yeah. Jennifer, you made a point uh, in our recent conversation about people holding conservative values and choosing to vote against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden. And you made a point about being pro-life. Could you reprise that uh, that point? And then maybe Sarah and Tara might like to respond to it. You know, as, as Republicans... I'm pro. I'm a pro-life Republican. I always have been. It's just the, my conservative core, but I have always understood that the pro-life issue is much larger than I don't want to say just the abortion debate because it's an important debate, but it is so much bigger than that. It is about the dignity with which we treat human life throughout, from beginning to end, and there is no there is no dignity in this administration's approach to the coronavirus. There, there is no humanity to it. When a sitting U.S. senator um, try, you know, tries to diminish or demean American citizens for seeking the necessary financial support to keep their f- food on, their, on the table for their children, not, if we are going to be the pro-life party, then we have to understand exactly that, that there is dignity, and care and and empathy all of these things are part of being pro life we we still want to be the party that says we want to empower over create you know create empowerment over dependency but that's not where we're living right now we are to, and and I just don't understand I have to keep saying the phrase over and over again because I don't understand people who don't get this it is a global pandemic it is not a democratic conspiracy to take down Donald Trump there's, I am, I am so disheartened and hurt by some of the things I've seen my fellow Republicans do and heard my fellow Republicans say when it comes to this issue, because it does reveal a hypocrisy on their part after spending so many years um, trying to walk this message of being pro-life. 
And they want they wonder why uh, we've decided to target some of those enablers and some of those hypocrites. That's why. I mean, we're literally talking about life and death at this point, and we and and to watch. I mean, I've been in Republican politics for twenty five years, and there are people that I'm like, what? You guys are the you know the first ones that are screaming about Planned Parenthood funding, but yet you are over here questioning the motives of of nurses and and things to help people and our children, the safety of our children for an economic political message for Donald freaking Trump of all people. It is, it is unbelievable, the hypocrisy and, um, and that, and they need to be held accountable for it. On the choice, on the pro-life, pro-choice issue. So my parents vote strictly on that issue, on the pro-life issue and several things. And I, and I, and I know that they'll, they'll listen and I, and I love them very much. Um, but my parents just lost their first friend to COVID their first, they have a church group and their first friend in their kind of age group, um, was lost. They have a, a group of couples that are about, I'd say there's like 10 couples. And so there's that. Um, and then I, I think when you start to think about, you know, the deaths that, from the older generation. And then as they start seeing children and then people in their forties, there's all that. These are lives and they matter. There are lives all over the world to your point about being a global pandemic. And then when my parents argued with me about, you know, we're we're talking about Biden in the court, they go to the court. I say the court is five, four, you know, if Biden becomes, um, president and God forbid we lose a Supreme court justice, he'll put in a liberal leaning, and it will still be five, four, it will still be five, four sit yeah. this one election. Think That's about a really it. important. Did it resonate? Point. Just, did they respond? Yeah. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, no, but Sarah, points. it's a really important point that you bring up because that's, that is, <laughs> uh, I think the most common refrain from conservatives who are struggling with how to vote this election. It, it, it's, it's the court and it's the, and it's the pro-life issue. And I think the way you frame that should be really useful to those folks. And that, and and by voting this way, you by voting for leadership in this matter, you're voting for life. I and mean, to, and, and for, to the court, the, the issue on the court, um, Judge, you know, Justice Gorsuch was put on the court, and he was supposed to be the, you know, everyone. That was the first big conservative. Um, you know, success or victory or whatever to, to have him on the court. And we recently had him vote on what I believe was the right side of the issue for uh, um, protecting the rights of LGBTQ Americans in a very recent case. And that was a case that the Trump administration fought to the Supreme Court to try to keep their evangelical base in line or happy with them. And so, so for folks who are looking at, who think that the, the justices, the Supreme court is the be all and the end all of your election, your decision. I bet a lot of those folks who were so happy to see him appointed that court didn't think he was going to vote the way that he did. To me, that is a sign that when that for the majority of decent people who make it to that place, that extraordinary place at the Supreme court, that when given the opportunity, they're going to step into that role. They are they are going to put their partisan leanings aside. They're going to do what in the, the majority of the times they believe are truly the constitutional, the right thing for America. So don't think that by voting for Donald Trump, you're going to get a whole bunch of people in that court who are always going to go the way you think that they should go. They actually take their role there with you know a tremendous amount of gravity. 
Um, and he's in a so, second term. He'll be in a second term, so he doesn't have to pander to the evangelicals. Right. There'll and, be no and more pandering necessary. He's going to do whatever the hell he wants to do, which is the you know imagine he's on he's only bridled now by the idea of being reelected. Imagine what it's going to be like when he doesn't have that that guardrail or that incentive. It's a it's a scary thought, and it forces the evangelicals who have bent over backwards and and um, you know reinterpreted. Christian orthodoxy in ways to justify their support for him. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> we need a whole to episode force, on yeah, that. Yeah, that's a. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, you just suggested that Donald Trump is at all bridled right now. <laughs> well, be less so in a well, second term. True. Um, yeah. Should scare everybody listening to this that's to right. their core. That's absolutely right. Um, and th- and then the, the life issue overall, right? Not just abortion. Expanding that definition, I think, is really challenging some of those in the evangelical community, because you're starting to see that there is some loss of support There's, there. The numbers are um, moving. They are yeah. moving. And yeah. I think they are struggling with this because it's so at the core of Judeo-Christian values. Yes. Um, it's hard to justify it when people are dying in your church group and in your yes. Bible studies and you have preachers that are trying to defy science and people are paying yeah. the price with their lives. It's, um, yeah. it, I think there's it, a struggle there to reconcile it. Yeah, Because there is nothing pro-life about loved ones dying alone in the hospital. That's right. About elderly people literally abandoned to disease-infected nursing homes. Nothing pro-life about sending kids out there saying, hey, let's see if this works or not. Right. And all the way back to the beginning of this, as a conservative and a grandparent, there is nothing pro-life about the message that I think there's be a lot of grandparents out there who who wouldn't mind trading a couple of years of their life for the economic security of, of their grandkids. Which was actually said by uh, Ken Paxson, right in in uh, Texas. He actually yes. said that. Yep, yep. Which is so really morose and disgusting. This this is a, uh, a, a now that we're talking about this being a life issue in the expanded context. In 2002, back in 2002, there was a surge of women who voted for Republicans because they saw safety and security as a very important factor in their vote. So. How much do you all think that the coronavirus presents almost a new type of security issue? I mean, we could call it life security. Um, how how are you? How do you think about that? I think that goes to the core of what you've been talking about. What we've been talking about this whole time yeah. that that you're you're worried about the the health and well being of your family. You're worried about the economic stability of your family, the ability to feed your children and keep a roof over their head. That you're worried about your own health and safety. I think I think that I think that's a great um, you know a great insight, Ron, because I was definitely a national security voter right. In, right. in that time yeah. frame. But because that was where we thought, um, you know, that that's where we were very focused on the threat that the, 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 a threat outside of the country, outside of our boundaries, um, that we had to that we had to be concerned about. This is so much closer to home. This seems so much more um, imminent, I think, to people. So yeah. I, I think that for yeah. those women who are are uh, led in in whole or in part on election day by security issues. I think it's a great it's a great insight. I'm, absolutely, this will be in, influencing them. This is Trump's 9/11. You know, every president has had major um, tragedies where they've had to respond, where the country has rallied around. You know, and you know, for for Reagan, it was the Challenger or the Beirut bombings, and you know, for Clinton, it was Oklahoma City. 
For Bush, it was 9-11. For Obama, it was the church shootings and, um, <clears throat> you know, things like that. And they were able to rally the country. And Donald Trump is not, he's, he's faced now with his dilemma, his crisis, and he has failed miserably. Not only has he not brought people together, he's turned something as basic as, <clears throat> excuse me, as basic as wearing a mask, which is scientifically proven to not spread coronavirus as quickly and that it could actually help us. He turned that into a red or blue issue, into a political issue, and um, amongst other things. Um, that is, that that level of failure is unlike what those other presidents had to face because this is literally ongoing and costing lives. Theirs was in response to this is still ongoing and Trump is still failing. And you remind me, when Tara, when you say that about, um, you know, each president as they've, they've had their moment. And again, I was a I was a either a Republican candidate for office or a Republican chairman throughout the entirety of or, or a Republican, you know, an active Republican throughout the entirety of Barack Obama's presidency. And and I think I've talked to you about this before, Ron, I'm not sure. Um, when he was standing in that church at the funerals after the shooting. Uh, yeah. After the Mother Emanuel in South Carolina, yeah. for those yeah. who don't know what yes. we're talking about. It's when yeah, Dylan right, right, in. right. We assume that everybody people. is as yeah. tuned in. And, um, <laughs> yeah. But when he began to just kind of spontaneously sing Amazing Grace. Oh my goodness, mm, goosebumps. And everyone, I, I mean, it, it still brings me to tears sometimes when yeah. I see that clip. I will never be somebody who says Barack Obama was the best president ever, and I'll always know what my differences are with him. But as an American, I've he moved me, and I felt connected to what he was trying to tell me in that moment, trying to tell all of us in that moment. We cannot survive as a country if we do not have leadership that has the ability and the desire to try to bring Americans together in our darkest times. We don't have that right now. We don't have it. Okay. Given all the territory we've covered, um, I wonder what each of you might say to conservative women and understanding that obviously they're not a monolith, uh, given everything we've talked about. What might you say to them? Uh, the, the ones who are legitimately wrestling with uh, what to do in November. And maybe they're wrestling because, uh, not because, um, of some sort of political prejudice, but because they genuinely don't know who to trust and they don't know what to make of the, uh, the, the, the information coming from the administration. Um, it's, it's, it's almost seems, um, like the question of who to vote for is inseparable from the question of who to believe and what information to believe right now. So what do you say to those, those women in particular um, who are trying to figure out what to do right now? I would say that you need to use, go with your gut. You know, what is your gut instinct here with this? Because usually our guts are right with things. You know, if you have to make excuses and have to bend over backwards and apply a different standard to what you see now compared to how you would react if it were someone that was of the opposite party, if it were Hillary, if it were Obama, if it were Bill Clinton, whomever, um, would you react the same way? 
don't make excuses just because you think that um, you're being disloyal to the party or you're uh, just going along with uh, what your, you know, what your contemporaries are saying because they support Trump in this administration. Use your common sense. Are the are you making decisions based on the best welfare and well-being for you and your family? Take the politics out of it because at this, you know, coronavirus and and the pandemic we're going through doesn't have an R or a D next to who that who it kills. So that is the perspective that you need to come from on this. If you once you start putting it in the once you start framing it as well it's you know because it's either Trump or it's liberals or owning the libs or it's you know it's a civil liberties thing they're trying to take our rights away the hell with all of that that is that is propaganda nonsense to try to manipulate people into making decisions that are not necessarily in their best interest, but in the best interest of Donald Trump and his reelection. So don't make the decision based on that. Make the decision based on what's best for you, your family, your children, your community. How, what would you do if it were not in a po- framed in a political um, divisive way? And go from there. Because I think deep down inside, people know what they're seeing is wrong. They know that Donald Trump's behavior and his reaction to what's happening is wrong. They know it doesn't sit right with them, but they've been trying to rationalize it for years because they've supported this maybe. And now it's gotten to the point where you just can't rationalize it anymore because lives are on the line. So, and it's, and that's okay. Everybody that's has okay. that, reaches that point. Everybody and gets they're to not the alone. Point. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not yeah. alone. And it's all right. You know, it's, yeah. it's not too late to make, to do the right thing moving yeah. forward. Yeah. That's really well put. Jennifer? Well, I would, I would have started it exactly the, with what she said about trusting your gut. Um, and I think, and, and, and as she was, as Tara was talking, I was thinking, you know, as young girls, as young, you know, young girls coming into our womanhood and our adult lives, we are taught to really develop that gut instinct. Like we're, we're taught to listen to your gut when you're on a first date, to listen to your gut when you're walking through a dark parking lot. If you feel vulnerable, then you might be vulnerable and to respond. And I think that we're taught that, that that's kind of instilled in us in a way that's different than for men who have, who don't have the same kind of physical vulnerability all the time. And I have learned over the years to trust my gut and um, I have never regretted being more cautious or taking an action that was strictly based on my gut instinct. But to take it a step beyond where Tara has talked about, because I think for a lot of these folks, they, um, they, maybe they did, they probably did vote for Donald Trump in 2016 because it doesn't matter. I don't, in fact, I don't, I don't really care why, like, it doesn't matter why I respect the fact that it was an election and you have a right to choose who you're going to vote for. And so they made a choice. But they should look at this election. Every election is a chance to start fresh if you want to. That's the whole idea, right? So if we go back and look at everything we've discussed in this in this conversation, and if you want to go further and get on Google, go back and search everything this president has done policy-wise, I believe you will be convinced to vote against him. That even from a political perspective, his policies have been damaging and have undermined the Constitution, and the conservative movement, if you want to look at it from that, from that perspective, that the president 
um, is not just a broken human being. He is a bad president. He's bad at the job. And it is okay to say that today, just this one day, I'm going to go in and pull that curtain closed behind me and vote for what I know is right for my country, right for my children, right for my my future. It's okay to do that. And, and, and you can do it even if you're saying to yourself, I'm never going to do it again. Next year, I'm voting Republicans again. Midterm, I'm voting Republican again. It's okay. You can make that decision. And the most important thing that I think that, that I think it helps people to know, it's kind of a, a, a two piece piece of information is one, you are not alone. This is already a movement that is millions of Americans large. It is growing. And, and we know just from what we're tracking here at the Lincoln Project, it is growing every single day. People who have just had it, who are, who are going to do the right thing. And then the second part of that is, you don't ever have to tell anybody who you voted for. You That's don't right. have to justify it <laughs> no one to your know, neighbor. You and you God. don't have to tell right. You don't have to tell your husband. You don't have to justify it to the guy down the street. It's your vote. That's the that is truly what is magnificent about our country. That's so, you know, truly pure and different and in our constitution. It's you and your vote. So you step in there. You do the right thing. And you get two years from now when the midterms come around, if you want a fresh start, you want to vote all Republican down the ballot, you get to do that. That's the beauty of America. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.